welcome back to another episode of Sisterly. You're here with your co-hosts, Rebecca and Olivia, and I have a case of the giggles because (laughs) I can't do an intro today to save my life, Um, but we are really happy to have you back, and we're super excited about today's episode um, because we have another guest on. Today, we have Sadie Sutton here with us to talk all things mental health. For those of you who aren't aware, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, something that Rebecca and I are super passionate about. And Sadie has her own podcast called She Persisted, where she talks all about mental health, particularly with like teenagers. And we're going to get into that in depth shortly, but we're really excited to have her. She was very inspiring um, and really educated on the topic. Just in general, but especially for someone who's like 19, 20 years old. (laughs) Um, So can't wait for you guys to hear that conversation. Um, But first of all, we just want to say, hey, hi, hello. We're excited to (laughs) be here. Do a little catch up. We hope you liked last week's episode, which was more of like a pop culture episode just for fun. You know, we love talking about that. Honestly, if there was an area of my top education, it would probably be pop culture. <laughs> right. So it's my area of expertise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Today our dad texted us about how he doesn't know anything about Chloe Kardashian and he spelled Chloe with a C. I was I like, know, we were like hmm, Dad, excuse me. Their names all begin with K's. Duh. That's <laughs> like the whole thing, Dad. Anywho I'm an educator. So. <laughs> yeah, so on uh, a couple days ago, I finally saw the new Doctor Strange movie, and Olivia saw it too the same night. Yeah. If you've not seen it and you want to see it, skip ahead because yeah, yeah, I don't want to give any spoilers. Yeah. We won't give away like too, too much, but we want to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm going to give off like a vibe about it, like <laughs> yeah. what the vibe of it was. So if you don't want a vibe spoiler, like skip ahead. <laughs> um, And the vibe was like horror movie. <laughs> I know. I In the theater, I like leaned over to Mike and I was like, so this is like horror vibes. I was like, yeah. I wasn't expecting a horror film. And literally uh, like m- multiple times during the movie, a child screamed like at the yeah. top of their lungs, like truly terrified so. i was freaking out yeah i mean they made it very horror movie-esque i also it was i i feel like that is the first marvel movie i've ever watched where i was like oh i'm kind of scared yeah it was like scary vibes i also don't feel I like just like that it was just different yeah and dr strange normally isn't like spooky so it wasn't expected right it was just an unexpected vibe that i didn't it made me feel like the movie was originally slated to come out in like october uh-huh. And it like just didn't because it felt like Halloween vibes. Almost. Now that's just like a nice May horror film. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, you know what? Like regardless of film plot and what happens, um, Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch is just – she's my jam. She does it great. I just like – I really am upset by the lack of justice that her character was given – in like the Marvel franchise, like I just that just gets like so many bad endings. I'm like, can she just like like nothing good has happened to her? But I, I guess also once again, like not to get too like philosophical, but I feel like she is the classic story of how a villain is created, right? Because it's yeah. like villains are not born, they're made, right? Yeah, and she like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy happens. Yes, and then she gets to a point, and, you're and, like, and so she breaks and she becomes kind of insane and so I, 
I guess like when I think of it from a broader perspective of everything she's been through, I mean, she was like, manip- she, I mean, she was tortured as a child. Then right. she was manipulated into, you know, trying to destroy the world. Then her brother dies. Then finally she falls in love. Then she has to kill the person she's in love with. Then she like thinks she has children, but she doesn't. And they are alive in other multiverses. Like, I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot, it's for a lot. Anyone to go through. After the movie, though, I was kind of like, wow, I really want to rewatch WandaVision because I really liked that show. I really liked WandaVision, too. It was a good one. it was well done. I liked the Loki one, too, but I really like WandaVision. Agreed. But yeah, so I guess it's like when I really think about it, I'm like, it kind of makes sense. And there is something nice about walking away from a movie kind of liking the villain a little mm-hmm. bit or or at least understanding them feeling for them a little bit yeah I, I feel thinking, like you get why she's there yeah so I was thinking about that how I was thinking about Shang-Chi and how in that movie they kind of made the dad a little bit redeemable but I actually think it was different because the dad was like a bad guy then he was redeemed when he married the mom then he was like evil again and then he mm-hmm. like kind of whereas Wanda it's like she was just a girl who was like really dealt a bad hand and then yeah became i mean became a witch so also the one thing i'd like to say about wandavision or not sorry not wandavision wanda scarlet witch in general is that like her powers don't make any sense to me like her power is just (laughs) everything she can do anything like that's what her power is my issue with like all previous marvel movies is that she is consistently underutilized i'm like she is like the most powerful one why is she not front and center every single time time. i'm like i'm sorry why couldn't she just kill thanos right off the bat like i know i'm like she can do all things she can like make you see vision so i'm like she could have just made everybody believe they were somewhere else and like made things a whole lot easier yeah i just feel like sometimes it's like in the avengers movies you're like oh i understand how they didn't win and then you watch one of their solo movies i'm like these people are very powerful why can't they just figure it out get it together (laughs) yeah so i mean i liked it i do have to say doctor strange in general is not he's not my favorite my favorite i didn't love the first doctor strange i thought me neither I like Rachel McAdams. Love Rachel. Oh my gosh. Rachel McAdams. But I felt like the plot was weird. I also feel like that movie was extremely appropriative. The first (laughs) one, you mean? Yes. I'm like, this is a story about a white man going to Asia to become a wizard. And but then also the person who runs this sanctuary is also white. Like I just super weird yeah it's questionable it's like a, a white man making like an ancient asian tradition famous I'm like, right justice uh, for wong but okay seriously like <laughs> anywho i think they were trying to be trying to be like it's inclusive like everyone from everywhere can be a wizard and i'm like this is stupid like i just <laughs> anywho i don't know i didn't love it i just felt like yeah uh, yeah, I, I think I like the second one better than the first one. Also, in the first one, like Doctor Strange is so unlikable, and he gets like slowly more likable over time. He's still not my fave, but in the first one, he's just like really a jerk. So yeah, yeah. Also, I, I just love Rachel McAdams so much. She hasn't aged. I know she can do anything. She can do anything. She can she pull also, off any hair color. I was just gonna say that yeah, she can any rock hair color. every hair color, and there's not that many people who can do that like truly every color she's also just so timelessly beautiful i know you know what i mean like she would be beautiful in any time yeah 
And that's good for her because she's in several time traveling movies. So, so. many time traveling movies. <laughs> More than most. <laughs> um, but anywho, I want everyone to go see the movie and let us know what you think. Thanks so much for listening to us blabber on about our newest movie watch. Um, now we couldn't be more excited to get into our interview with Sadie. So today we are joined by Sadie. Sadie is the host of teen mental health podcast, She Persisted, which discusses a broad array of mental health issues such as trauma, anxiety, depression, PTSD, self-harm, self-esteem, and evidence-based treatments. She has almost 100 episodes and has reached over 65,000 listeners, and over the years has interviewed a number of mental health experts, including psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, social workers, and writers. Her podcast aims to inform people and remind listeners that they're not alone in their mental health journeys. Sadie is also a student at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and is pursuing a degree in psychology. Sadie, we are so excited to have you with us today. Welcome, Thank Sadie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, first, we would just like to get to know you a little bit better and have our listeners get to know you. Um, you know, Rebecca and I know a little bit just because we chatted before, but we know that you're originally from the Bay Area, but actually go to school on the East Coast, which is like very like weirdly mirroring Rebecca and I. So <laughs> we just love to – I don't know where you're from on, in the Bay Area, though. Yeah, so I was born in Seattle, and then we lived in Santa Monica for like six or seven years, and then we're now like Hillsboro, San Mateo, so right outside of um, the city, and then I'm at school in Pennsylvania at so fine. UPenn. Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay, so I live in San Francisco, so you're just just a little awesome. bit away from me. Um, did you go to the um, – do you follow Tanks on Instagram? No. She did. She's in San Francisco. I follow her. And I was watching her stories and she's in the Bay Area right now. And she did a rich mom walk yesterday, like an open invite one. And I was like, should I go? And it was at 930 <laughs> in the morning. And I was like, I don't think I want to wake up that early. But it looked so fun. Oh, I love she's that. She's in the Bay. But next time. Next yeah. Time we'll go. <laughs> I, totally. No, I love that. And yeah, and the Bay Area is going a little crazy today because we have beta breakers, which for people who don't know what that is, it's like a... It's like a weird seven mile race. It's like a very specific length, um, but it's not your average race. It's like a lot of people in costumes. Honestly, a lot of naked people running. Like a lot of drunk people running. <laughs> Which, like, is it uncommon for San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's a big, it's a big weekend in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but we would love to hear too, kind of like how you made the decision to venture out to Penn. You did like the reverse of what I did when I went to college, which was came out here. Um, so yeah, I was just curious to know more about that. Yeah, so I always kind of knew that I wanted to go somewhere away from home. I was really big on like going to the East Coast or going somewhere where I was far away from being home. Um, I just wanted that independence and that chance to kind of be by myself and completely get to make my own decisions and live live alone and kind of have that separation from my parents, which was interesting because I'd already done like kind of the whole living alone thing. Not alone, but I had been in treatment for a year and a half. I'd lived across the country. Um, but even when it came time for college applications, I was like, the, I like the idea of like not being driving distance from home and really getting that chance to be independent and get that college experience. And so 
when I started looking at schools, it was really just like psychology programs where my test scores and grades ended up placing me um, in regards to like what my reach, safety, and target schools were. And I loved Penn's psychology program. I loved their campus. I loved that all their schools were on the same campus and you could do research as an undergraduate. And so based on all of those factors, I applied early decision and ended up working out. And it was really crazy because I applied during COVID. So I'd never even been on campus when I oh, wow. first got there. So like my first day was move-in day and it was really an adjustment to like getting to know the city and the campus and meet new people. But it really did work out for the best and it was really exciting um, to get to know a new place and explore this past year. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember when my mom dropped me off at Penn for like for the first day. I like I had never lived you know, outside of home. And I, I just remember looking at her and being like, what if I can't get around? Like, what if I just like can't figure out the streets around here? And yeah, she was no, like, Uber was my best friend. <laughs> yeah. And she was just like, I, I feel very confident you'll be able to figure this yeah. out. That's so funny. <laughs> but it was just funny because it was like, I had visited, but it, it's a campus like in the middle of a city too. So there's just like regular city streets and it's not like a grid. It's just like named streets. And I was like, how am I going to manage this? And they're all named after nuts, like chestnut yeah, exactly. and like I walnut and there's like yeah. spruce and like I, I could not for at least the first like six months tell them apart. I was like, yeah. you're just going to have to send me your location because I'm not going to be able to find you. And they're all like 34th, 33rd, 32nd Street. I was like, they are all the same. Yeah, I do not know where you are. But yeah. And so you just finished your freshman year? Yeah, we just wrapped up like a week ago. I came back last Tuesday. I moved out, finished up finals. Um, So freshman year is officially wrapped. Wow, that's crazy. It's kind of nice that you like just got in there like past the pandemic enough where you were able to be on campus. Yeah. yeah. Because there was really those two years there where I was just like, it's really rough to be a student yeah. right now. So I'm glad you got to live the Penn experience because I you know, I didn't go there, but when I would visit Rebecca, I was like obsessed with just like the area it was in and like, it's just so beautiful there. It's also very like quintessential East Coast, so. <laughs> yes, very much like old, like, like the Ivy League kind of vibes. The campus very much gives that. And so it was totally. definitely fun. It's It'll be interesting to see this next year because there were still like a couple of things that weren't totally normal. Like we started second semester late, finals were online first mm. semester which everyone loved um, yeah. <laughs> and then we did never have like no masks in class but for the most part it was like a pretty typical freshman year which I was really happy about well that's good yeah that's so yeah. nice and did you start your podcast while you were in school or was it something you started before yeah so I started it the summer before junior year of high school um, I was wrapping up intensive treatment. I was still actually at a therapeutic boarding school when I started. And so I was recording on this like janky iPod touch. And I was like <laughs> using our super restricted lockdown Chromebooks to try and upload these podcasts. And they're like, Sadie, you're not allowed on social media. We like block every single website. What would make you think you could put a podcast <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> no, it's for mental health. This is great. And they were like, no. So... <laughs> Rough start, but yeah, I started it when I was still in treatment and I would sit down with my friends and my therapists and my family members and start sharing my story and then continued it through high school and at Penn. And so just really evolved from there and now doing a lot more interviews with experts and continuing to share what I learned in treatment and really just create a great culmination of experiences um, of people's mental health challenges that teens can learn from their experiences in addition to just talking about my own. 
That's awesome. I definitely think it's great that there's now this opportunity to talk about teen mental health specifically in a podcast format. I think that would have been something that I really would have I would have thrived a lot more if I had had that when I was like 16 because there's not there wasn't you know there wasn't like a lot of relatable stuff out there it's not like there wasn't any information on mental health but it's like but like when like a 40 year old man is like you know it you'll get through this it's like (laughs) don't believe you like thank you for that sentiment but like there's no connecting there and I definitely felt that in treatment too like there were so many doctors and therapists and staff members that were like this will get better like I've been there you'll get through it but to not see a teenager having been in your position saying that was kind of discouraging. And it's something I wish that I would have had. Um, so that was part of the reason why I did start the podcast. Totally. And it's also so different hearing it from like a mental health professional, not that they're not great, but like hearing it from a doctor or a therapist versus hearing it through someone that you could kind of see as a peer going through yes. the same mm-hmm. thing. It's just like mm-hmm. it, it means a lot more. Um, yeah, coming from someone who's relatable to you. So absolutely. I'm curious what your, you know, like how you feel like your first few episodes have kind of changed to what you talk about now. Like, do you feel like it's not, it sounds like you were talking a lot about your journey and I'm curious, I guess this is like two questions in, in one, like how you also kind of got that courage to just start yeah, sharing. Out. Yes. Sharing your own personal experiences first. I feel like that's, so hard to kind of kick off with. Yeah, it's interesting. It was like a seed my dad had planted at the beginning of my treatment journey. He was like, Sadie, you should podcast this. Like literally like when I was doing my first intake at my first residential program. (laughs) Like dad, I'm kind of busy. I was mortified (laughs) because he asked me in front of like all of the clinicians I'd be working with. And I had just gotten there and I was so intimidated. Um, And I literally just had no idea what was going on. And he was like, can she have a recording device here? She's going to do a podcast. (laughs) And they were like, "Uh, that is so against TikTok. Absolutely not. And I was like, oh my God, please stop. I was literally so embarrassed. And I also was like, I hate my parents. My parents are the root of my problem. So I was like, I will not be doing a podcast. Like you cannot make me. But then a year and a half later, there was a lot of things that had come full circle. And I had made all this progress that people had said I would. And I was finally at this point of living my life worth living, which I never thought I would get to that point. And I had learned so much that I did really feel compelled to share. And there was a couple of things also, like not hearing a lot of teens that had fully recovered, not hearing that narrative, realizing how lucky I'd been with the resources that I had gotten to receive and wanting to share that as well. Um, feeling that a lot of what I'd gone through could have been preventable and all of those together kind of led me back to the idea of sharing my story. Um, I was also really young when I went through my mental health challenges and my treatment journey, which I thought was also really unique. And so that kind of put me in a unique position. Um, So because of all those things, I was like, I want to share my story. How can I do that? And it really felt like everyone had social media. I didn't really see that as like a way of sharing my story, but I was like, yeah, maybe I'd like promote something on there. Didn't really want to do a blog. It just didn't feel right. Everyone in their mother had YouTube. It also <laughs> didn't feel totally like, like the right platform, the right medium. Um, But podcasting did seem like something I could learn and try out. And there weren't a lot of teenagers in this space. And so I started recording and sharing my story. And it was really just my experiences and my friends' experiences. So we talked about 
what it was like to experience depression and anxiety and what we'd learned about building healthy relationships. And I would just like sit down and tell my entire life story, which like, <laughs> I don't know who would want to listen to that. Like I have since gone back and re-recorded that episode because I was like, this is a train wreck. <laughs> not a podcast anyone would subscribe to. Um, but yeah, so it started with that. And then I think I probably did like seven or eight episodes and it was like you you can only talk about yourself so much. Like <laughs> at a certain point, you're like, we gotta, we gotta do something else. Um, so I started sharing more of what I'd learned in treatment, really teaching a lot of DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy skills, leaning on therapists and family members to kind of create a full picture. And then I started doing more interviews, um, and then really leaning into like solo episodes where I dive in deep and teach different things, whether it's like crisis survival or emotion education, um decreasing emotional vulnerability, all these things that I learned in treatment that I still utilize today, um, and continuing to just have really deep conversations that go into a lot of depth about different mental health challenges. Like you mentioned, whether it's like depression, anxiety, stress, ADHD, um, navigating high school, navigating college, navigating college applications, like all these kinds of things that teenagers deal with. So as Sadie um, mentioned, she is studying psychology, and I have to assume that that is informed by your own mental health journey. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your mental health journey and sort of where that all started? Yeah, so I started really struggling with my mental health in middle school and high school, and it was something that slowly built over time, and I can look back and kind of pinpoint what was going wrong, but at the time, it was just like my normal. It was my constant, like I was consistently stressed, overwhelmed, sad, depressed, anxious, and that was just kind of how life looked for, looked for me. And I think that's something that's really unique to adolescent mental health is that especially when these things culminate over time it really does feel like it's all you've ever known. And so when you start the recovery journey, it can be really difficult to work towards a goal because you've never experienced that before. So for me, everyone was like, you can recover, you can be happy, you don't have to be depressed. And I was like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that feels like. Like I get that you're saying that, but it was so discouraging because I didn't even think that was possible for me to feel and work towards. So Middle school, high school, I struggled a lot with severe depression and severe anxiety, and I can link it back to a couple of belief systems that I was operating by, which is that I didn't think I deserved love, I didn't think I would be good enough for my parents, and I thought that I was deserving or just destined to forever be depressed. Like I thought that was just how I worked. I could understand that other people maybe weren't depressed or that they weren't anxious or that they had the capability of not suffering, but I didn't really think that I was capable of that. And so I was really operating through the world in a way that I was constantly looking for circumstantial evidence that supported those beliefs. So every single interaction I had with my parents supported the belief that I would never be good enough for them. And as most teens and kids believe or have the belief, um, or even just interact with your parents, you want their love and care and support and affection um, because that's how, that's how we're raised. Like that's how we grow up. We want that approval. And I didn't think I would ever get that or be deserving of it. Um, similarly with not being deserving of love, which is something really sad for a teenager to think that you just aren't worthy of that, which we all are. And so all of my relationships supported that. Um, the way I looked at myself, talked to myself, my internal monologue supported that. Um, and because of those belief systems, um, I became very depressed. My sleep struggled. My um, relationship struggled. I went like 110% into schoolwork initially and really just like dove into that to distract myself. And then it got to the point where I wasn't able to really 
be an effective student because I was constantly having these mental health crises. I was going back and forth between therapy appointments and outpatient and inpatient. Um, and because I was struggling so early on, I was able to take that year and wasn't really a year and a half off from school because I did do a year at a therapeutic boarding school where I did my sophomore year of high school, but I did do a medical leave um, the second semester of my freshman year to work on my mental health and get that help that I really needed because my mental health had deteriorated to the point where I couldn't even show up for high school. I couldn't show up and be a student um, because everything else was just falling apart. So the more and more depressed, anxious I got, the more I leaned on other behaviors and unhealthy patterns and relationships to try and just feel seen and heard and validated and get the acknowledgement that like I wasn't okay and I needed help. But I didn't know how to ask for that. And so halfway through my freshman year of high school, we were at a point, we being my parents and I had tried everything. We did inpatient at home, outpatient, outpatient DBT, group therapy, family therapy, psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, like you name it, we had tried it and nothing was really working. I was still really depressed. I was still really anxious. We were having a lot of conflict. These behaviors were still popping up. And yeah, so they decided to look elsewhere and try and get more support. And so they did a lot of research and they found this amazing program right outside of Boston at a hospital called McLean. And it's a Harvard affiliated, Harvard Medical School affiliated program. The specific, um, area of the hospital, the program that I went to is called Three East, and it's a dialectical behavioral therapy program for adolescent girls. So they specialized in exactly what I was struggling with, which was depression, anxiety, my relationships were super dysfunctional, my ability to regulate my emotions was just like completely shot, my coping skills were really ineffective, and I really just needed a lot of support. And so that was a complete game changer for me. I went in being suicidally depressed, struggling to like the max degree, really at a rock bottom. And 14 weeks later, I was no longer chronically depressed. I still had my moments where I would feel depressed, but I wasn't waking up every morning immediately feeling depressed and going to bed at night the same. Um, I was no longer struggling with suicidal ideation, and I was able to really manage my anxiety and relationships in a way that wasn't as overwhelming and derailing as it initially was. And so after that point, I did a year at a therapeutic boarding school, and I continued to maintain that progress that I did initially um, make at 3 East during those 14 weeks. So continuing to navigate my emotions. They didn't become overwhelming and put me in like a depressive spiral, continuing to work through anxieties as they arose rather than again, letting them build up and just become so overwhelming and derailing, continuing to build healthy relationships, beginning to reintegrate into academics and a school schedule and get to the point where I could move home. And then I started junior year at my local public high school and really reintegrated back into normal life and continued to do the podcast and share my mental health story. And it was interesting because when I first left treatment, I had the podcast, but beyond that, I really wanted like nothing to do with mental health. Like I was like, I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to be a doctor. Like I wanted to help people. I really liked that idea and it felt called to that. But the idea of working with people who were struggling the same way I was felt like I would just be triggered and I would relapse and that being around their suffering would cause me to just immediately go back into that hole that I was in. And I realized after doing the podcast for like a year and when I started thinking about college applications and maybe like what I'd want to major in, 
I was like, I, I can hold these conversations. I can hold the space to have these really intense conversations and not go into that same space that I was because I've learned how to cope. I've learned how to navigate my mental health issues and deal with challenges in a way that doesn't put me back in crisis mode. And so I I already knew that I was very passionate about it because I was doing the podcast, but I realized that that was what I really wanted to do professionally and academically and continue to work towards. So college applications happened. That was really the narrative that I went with, which was that I was so passionate about mental health, both with the podcast and with what I wanted to do going forward. And so that's how I ended up at Penn studying psychology and what I'm continuing to do and what I'm still very passionate about. But yeah, it was definitely a shift that took place where I was like, okay, maybe I can do this and I can be really passionate about this and not in a way that is at a detriment to my own mental health. Yeah, I think that's so amazing and powerful that you were able to turn all of those experiences into a way to share with other people and inform them. And like you said, not be triggered by all of that stuff again, because I feel like I can even experience sometimes where if I like talk about my anxiety enough, I'm like, I just start thinking about all my old anxious behaviors. And it can be so hard to like remember how much growth there's been since once you first had that experience to where you are now. And like, it's so helpful when you remind yourself of like all the coping skills that you've learned and like how much you, you know how to handle that situation better. Um, but I think given how many like challenging experiences you had so early, like that's amazing that you were able to deal with all that and also translate it into helping other people navigate those issues at such an early age. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too. One thing you were talking about was like how you think a lot of your anxiety and depression kind of came about because of these belief systems that you had and that was really driving it. And it kind of got me thinking back to like when I was in high school because that's when I also suffered the most with with my mental health. I think that's probably fairly common of a, of a lot of us. Yeah. Um, but it made me think like a lot of my belief systems too, I think were really driving it. I think I really had this mindset of like, I am going to be miserable. And that's because like, that's what I deserve. I also yeah. definitely also really related to this feeling of like, not being lovable, which I think mm -hmm. is like sometimes challenging to talk about because a lot of times when you're like, I don't feel lovable. I it feels like you're like somehow like the protagonist of like a rom-com where the, the girl is like <laughs> the yes. girl's like yes. emotionally unavailable and you're like, yes. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you're putting on the victim hat and it's kind of yeah. hard because it's like that is really like how you feel. Like right. I completely identified with being the victim. I was the victim in my family and my relationships and my friend group. Like I was in crisis mode and I thrived off of that because all I wanted was validation and support and to feel seen. And I really go back to the belief systems because even if you become depressed because, I don't know, there's a huge change in your life, like your parents get divorced, you move, um, maybe you lose a loved one, whatever the beginning reason that you're depressed is, if there is a reason for me, I really struggled to identify one. But whatever happens initially, those belief systems what I what I've understood through my experiences is that's what maintains the depression mm -hmm. and that's what can kind of make it worse because it's showing up in your relationships, it's showing up in your daily habits, it's showing up with the ways that you're investing in your work, academics, life, etc. Um and 
regardless of that first thing, which is a lot of the times out of our control, whether it's like a loss, a change, et cetera, those belief systems and the way that you currently live your life, that is in your control. And we can shift a lot of those things to improve our mental health. And so that's why I really like to focus there because it's something that that is in your control and that you do have the power to shift and see results. Whereas not fully accepting that initial stage, whether again, it's like a loss or a big change, being like, this is the reason I'm depressed. Like, well, okay, you can't do anything about that now. Like you have to accept that and move forward. But if we can target the belief systems, that is really where I found that I can see a shift. Yeah, no. And I, I, totally agree with that. I think like that's a lot of when I'm in therapy, that's like a lot of the work that we do as well as targeting like, well, why is it that you think that? You know, it's like I can be really hard on myself. And a lot of times it's because I truly believe that like no no matter what I do, it's not enough, whether that's Mm -hmm. in work with my family, with my relationship, like whatever it is, it's like it's not enough. And a lot of times my therapist tackles like, why is that enough yeah. enough? Like, why are you believing that? Like, what what would it look like for you for it to be enough? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, Yeah, okay. and like not understanding that those <laughs> beliefs, not understanding like what you're even operating in response to. Like, I found that to be such an uncomfortable position to be in. Like now looking back and being like, okay, I was in these unhealthy relationships. I was using these really unhealthy coping skills because I believed these things. Like that element of the unknown kind of goes away. But operating from these belief systems that you don't understand, it feels like really powerless and totally like your mental health is just totally out of your control. Whereas like doing that work to look inwards and understand where your motivations are coming from. Even if you're like, I really wish this wasn't the belief I'm operating by. If you can at least understand that, you can kind of like connect the actions, the emotions and the beliefs and make shifts where you want to. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because as we've been talking, it's like clear that there are a lot of similarities in in how people feel like their depression or their anxiety or like where it kind of stems from. But We were also curious, too, because you are a little bit younger than Rebecca and I, and even between Rebecca and I, I feel like there are differences in how we've experienced our own mental health struggles because of, like, our environment and, like, what we grew up in. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I, people in my grade were on, like, instant messaging and social media at, like, 12, and yeah. Rebecca didn't get a, I mean, not that this was necessarily the norm, but Rebecca didn't get a Facebook until she was 18. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, Instagram came out when you were in college. Like, right. It was just, I didn't have it. I didn't have Snapchat till like the end of my college experience. Yeah, yeah. And so things were different. And so I think we're curious too if you feel like, I mean, obviously you don't necessarily know what it's like to be older than you are, but if there are certain things that you think that like, I don't know if plague is the right word, but like plague your generation to kind of, make mental health like harder to to keep healthy I guess if that makes sense yeah I mean you're just exposed to so much more than you would have been 15 30 years ago like the amount of judgment the amount of information the the chaos that is going on in the world that you are subjected to is to a much higher degree than it has been in the past. So you just have to be that much more effective with the boundaries you set, how you cope with things, the foundation you give yourself, because it's so much easier to kind of be derailed by these stressors. Um, Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just like the baseline on which we're operating is to a much higher degree. And I don't think 
we would like it's our norm right like my baseline I'm like yeah this is like how I normally operate it's not like I'm gonna go back 50 years and be like this is so much less stressful I wish this is how I was living because there's not that comparison but I think in general teenagers are much more susceptible now to mental health challenges because the degree to stress that they're operating with at a very baseline level just the knowledge the information the chaos that they're exposed to is so much more overwhelming than it would have been 20 30 years ago um and so yeah they have to be more effective with how they're coping with things they have to be more intentional about what boundaries they set what relationships they're engaged in because if you don't have those boundaries and you're scrolling on social media and you're constantly comparing yourself to other people or you're seeing your own relationships or yourself is inadequate your your self-esteem, your mental health, your confidence, it's always going to be shot. And so you really just have to be a lot more skilled and intentional, which also sucks because our mental health education isn't where it needs to be to kind of supplement mm-hmm. for these excessive stressors. It's not like in school, we're learning how to set boundaries when you're scrolling on Instagram. We're not learning how to deal with a panic attack because you have four APs that you're taking next week. Like we're still not caught up to the point where we're equipping our teens the way they need to be. But the stress is at that point where they need these skills, but we're not totally teaching them yet. So it's a very odd limbo to be in. But hopefully with these next generations and with things like the podcast and a lot of creators on social media and hopefully in the school system, we'll start equipping teens with the skills that they really do need. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, the way that you described it. It's just like your baseline is different. Mm-hmm. I yeah. feel like I feel like a lot of times you see this, um, it's like an overemphasis almost on like, you know, Instagram is like killing our teens. And it's, I think it's more than that. Like, I think it's deeper than that. Like you said, it's like n- the baseline that kids and teens are operating at is just incredibly different. And of course, there are things like, Instagram, TikTok, uh, like Snapchat, other forms of social media that are all contributing to that that problem of just, yeah. you know, having to operate under all these stressors. I mean, Rebecca and I have two younger brothers who are both now teenagers officially as of yesterday. And I think about this all the time, how, you know, they had to deal with being in middle school and high school as like during this pandemic. And I just yeah. think that that's insanely different like that there's just things like that where it's we never had to go through that like that Mm -hmm. that did not you know I didn't have people constantly judging me on Instagram and you know Facebook when I was a teenager like I you know my parents actually set our parents set boundaries in place for us to not be on certain forms of social media because I think they were mainly afraid of us getting like like I don't know, like trafficked or like kidnapped, like and I don't think they're worried yeah. about like comments, but um, feet pics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think like it's just it's a completely different environment when you're you have so many things to think about. There's so many things being thrown at you all the time, and I think that's what's scarier is people not realizing the level that kids have to operate at now. Yeah. Yeah. I was like listening to I think another podcast recently and they were talking about how like anthropologically and like evolutionarily like our bodies like weren't really meant to cope with like all of the world's issues all at once and how like you know we were meant to be able to like handle the problems of like the village (laughs) but like now because of social media and like you know 
Twitter and the news and whatever, you can know about everything that's wrong all the time. And it's like you can know about it in places you've never been to. And you can also know about it like for everybody in your social circle. And that's just so much to take on and be aware of. And then to also have like your own like microcosm of like issues and interpersonal relationships and to be able to compare yourself to your peers constantly. I just feel like you're saying is like the baseline is so high already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you break down any aspect of it. Like even if we just think about like screen time and the relation of high screen time to mental health, the amount of screen time that teenagers are using, like not to fault them at all, but with we use computers in school, we were doing Zoom classes, you're on your phone all the time, like that in itself, that baseline is higher. And then we think about on average, teenagers are getting less sleep. That baseline is higher. Um, we, we think about all the stress, like you were just saying, of constantly being inundated with all these headlines and news sources and being aware of all the chaos that's going on in the world on top of interpersonal relationships and internal monologues about comparison and not being equipped with the skills to navigate that. It's very challenging. And so it's no wonder that the rates of teenage mental health challenges are rising. Yeah. I wanted to also ask, do you feel like people around your age are more open to discussing mental health or like the idea of pursuing therapy or treatment or do you feel like there's still a lot of stigma in your like age group or even younger I think it's definitely a lot more normalized I think it's it's a conversation that people are much more open to having I can't necessarily to speak speak to what it would be like to have similar conversations with people that are like 30, 50 years older and what that mental health um, conversation would look like. But I do think that people are more open and more willing to be like, you know what, like I'm not okay today or I do need support. I do need help. I think going to therapy is a much more normal thing than it used to be. And I don't feel like it's necessarily where it should be. Like we should be talking Mm -hmm. about mental health more. We should be promoting investing in your mental health just like we do promote investing in your physical health and exercising and eating well and getting enough sleep. Like all of these things are just as important in maintaining your mental health as well. And so there's definitely room to grow, but I do feel like it's a conversation that I feel very comfortable having with friends and peers and teachers. Um, and it's it's a need that I do feel is appropriate and okay to advocate for without dealing with excessive amounts of stigma. I'm also curious too, um, because I think, you know, you probably had to have a lot of courage to have conversations with your parents when you were in high school about your mental health and, you know, explain it to them well enough to get you the treatment you needed. And maybe that's incorrect. Maybe your parents are like super well educated on the topic. I feel like a lot of times with kids, it's like your parents don't really understand maybe, um, you know, I know for for me, luckily, I was able to talk to my parents and get the help that I needed, but it took a couple conversations, like, for me yeah. to really explain what I felt like and, and how it's hard to describe anxiety and depression, um, especially when you're a kid because everyone thinks it's just your hormones. So they're like, you'll be fine in a year, you know, like you just got to get like through even it. Like going back to the baseline thing, like that part of the baseline of not fully being able to like logically think through things. Your brain isn't developed. You feel your emotions more strongly. Teenagers are just in a really tough spot yeah. when it comes to mental health. Totally. And I'm curious what it was like for you to have that conversation with your parents about like, 
you know, how you were able to start that and continue the conversation where you were, because you said that you felt like you had tried everything. And it's like, how did you keep that going? You know, you kept trying, they kept trying, even when Mm -hmm. it felt like you had gone through all the options. Yeah, it's interesting. I did this interview with a parenting expert. Um, She works at, her name is Dr. Eliza Pressman, and she has a podcast called Raising Good Humans. Um, Some of it is like more younger kid oriented, but she does do stuff relating to teens as well. And so she said something which I think is very true, which is that the kids she's least worried about are the ones that are already in mental health care. Because once I was already being checked in on by therapists and psychiatrists and doctors, there was that third party to really make sure things were okay, check in on a weekly, monthly basis, and really keep tabs on how things were going and also hold my parents accountable when they were doing things that like weren't effective or weren't helpful um, and also direct us to the resources that we needed. Prior to that point, it again, is really there's not that structure um, and the professional support to to have people checking in on both myself and my family. And so I really behaviorally was showing that I wasn't doing well with like my sleep and my stress. And I was always in my room. I was sleeping all the time. I was withdrawn from my relationships. And so my mom did pick up on that. And it was getting to a point where she was very concerned. We were also having a lot of conflict that she did um, make an appointment with a pediatrician. And I went in and he was like, yep, you're definitely depressed. And then I went to a psychiatrist and then really was thrown into the mental health care system um, and started doing pretty intensive therapy and getting a lot of mental health support. So that was very unique in that that first point of asking for help or not even asking for help, but being given help. Um, I was able to get resources from that point onwards. And it wasn't really something that I wanted. It was like more I was told like you are going to this pediatrician appointment because you are very clearly not okay. Because like I mentioned, there wasn't that line of communication between my parents and I. I didn't feel like I had a relationship with them. There was a lot of resentment. I wouldn't have wanted to go to them and be like, I'm not okay. I need help. I also thought what I was feeling was normal for me. So there was so much going on that didn't allow for that conversation and that interaction for me to ask for help. But it is something that so many teenagers struggle with. It's one of my most frequently asked questions of like, how do I tell my parents I need therapy? How do I ask for help? How do I advocate for these resources? Um, And so it is something that is very challenging. And I think once you're in the system, a system being in quotations, um, it gets easier. So even if that means like going to a school counselor and having them facilitate a conversation and be like, hey, I think Sadie needs mental health support. Like, what are you willing to do? And then them holding your parents accountable and being like, this is really important. Like, you need to get on this can be a lot more effective than you being like, hi, parents, this is really important. Get on this. I need a therapist. Like having that adult to kind of do the work and help advocate can be really effective. And then once you do get a therapist, a psychiatrist, a counselor, whatever it is, they're also kind of in the loop, keeping tabs on you and your parents and being aware of when more resources are needed. So it is something that's very difficult. And A lot of the work that I did do in treatment was building that relationship with my parents so that if something did happen, I did feel comfortable going to them. I did feel comfortable asking for help. And we had that foundation that they felt good about because we'd gotten to such a point where there was no relationship and no line of communication to ask for help if I did need it. Yeah, that's also I liked how you mentioned, too, how like once you were kind of in this system of therapy and mental health support Mm -hmm. there were others who were kind of 
able to advocate for what you needed as well. And I, I feel like that was the case for me too. Now that I think about it, like once I had therapists and a psychiatrist, like they will call your parents. Yeah, out. yeah. Like this is not how we. They will. Here. Like that's not validating. <laughs> totally. We're stopping this pattern. Totally. And or, it's really helpful as a teen. Yeah. Or they'll. You know. I. You know. I be started. Um. And I started medication for my anxiety and depression in high school. And I remember my parents being very nervous about mm-hmm. that. And I totally understand. Like it's. You hear a lot of things about certain medications, and you get worried about putting. You know your child on those. And I totally get that. But like, I remember my psychiatrist like sat them down and was like, I think as a professional, yeah, Olivia needs these medications. Here's why. Like, I didn't really have to convince them. You know, they asked me if there was something I wanted. And I said, yes, um, because of like, you know, what the psychiatrist had told me and how I thought it was going to help. But she also took it from there. So I think that that's really helpful too to have someone as your advocate and 100%. I think what's also so important in my personal experience and Rebecca and I have talked about this before we've gone to therapy since we were very small children and um so we always felt like we had that in our pocket like if something was going on we knew we could go seek help because we yeah. it had always been an option like it had been something that was presented to us before so like yeah. I remember in college I had a couple spouts where I was going through a really hard time. And one of those times, I think my parents made me go back to a psychologist. And then another time I was like, I need to be back in therapy. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. I can tell how I'm feeling right now and it's not good. And I know that if I go to therapy in six weeks, I'm going to feel better than I feel right now. And it's because I had done it before. And yes. so I, I think it's just really helpful. Like, building it's almost like building a skill set of like yes. how yeah. how to take care of your mental health and you one of the tools in there is therapy or it's medication or it's whatever and like you're able to go through all those options when you've yeah. built that foundation yeah there's this thing in dbt called phone coaching and it's where you can call your therapist any hour of the day if you need support if you don't feel effective in your ability to use your skills in a situation, whether it's a conflict, an urge that arises, just a really overwhelming emotion, whatever it is, you call and you get skills coaching. And when you first start working with a new therapist, you first start with DBT, a lot of the times one of their first assignments will be to call them like twice that week and just say hi, share some good news, check in, see what's going on. And it's because when you're in crisis mode, it's that much more difficult to call for support, to ask for help, to make that therapy appointment. But if you do it when you're already in a good spot mentally, you've then created that habit, you've done it before, you have that skill in your toolbox, and it's so much easier to call for to call for help, to make that appointment, to, to go to therapy, etc. And it's something that I think is very true across the board with mental health and I wish more people did and were aware of is to practice these skills before you need them. Just like you exercise and eat well before you have really high cholesterol, hopefully, um, or really high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. Like You do these things hopefully before you need them and before it's life-threatening and you you build those skills up so that you have them when you need them rather than just expecting them to like magically appear. Yeah. I really like what you said too about like, especially for teens, being able to reach out to like a school counselor or someone. I feel like finding a resource for someone that you can trust 
to talk about these serious issues, especially if you feel like there isn't a line of communication with your parents, or maybe there is for other areas, but this area feels too intense or too scary to approach them. Like having a resource like that to sort of get you started and then have an adult in your corner who might be taken possibly more seriously than you, I think is like such a good way to get support and to like get your needs sort of met. And I had experience talking to a school counselor and I feel like as long as you find like the right person who's validating for you, that can be such a useful tool. Absolutely. So as we said earlier, you go to Penn and I graduated from there as well. And I was wondering how you feel like the school handles mental health. Like, do you feel like the school supports people or provides services? Like, how has it been for you while you've been there? Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I have thought about this a lot since I saw this question. I think it's a very good one Um, because Penn is a school that isn't known for necessarily having great mental health. There are tons of students that struggle with depression and anxiety and burnout and stress. And it's like a thing. It's called like pen face is what they call it. I don't know if they called it that when you were there. Oh, really? No, we didn't have a name for it, but it was certainly happening. (laughs) Yeah, it's that like you put on a face of being on top of things and not being overwhelmed and feeling like you're in control, but internally you're really struggling. And so it's interesting because while that is something that students are really struggling with, I did, I do feel like my mental health has improved, if not stayed constant since I got there. And I do attribute that to my ability to cope with things and the mental health skills that I went in with. So my, my thought there is it's really what you do with the resources that you have. Like, I think anyone has the potential to be really successful mentally at any school. It's kind of just which resources you use, the way you set up your habits, the routines you utilize, how you balance your workload. And there's also the potential for you to really, really struggle. And there are certain schools that will make that more, it's more susceptible for that to happen. Like if you, I don't know, are going to school in like Iceland and there's like two hours of daylight every single day like that's probably going to make things a little bit worse similarly like at Penn there's a lot of competition between people it's a very rigorous environment if you tie your worth to academics you probably will struggle um and like not to mention just in general like transitioning to college being a college student is something that comes with a lot of stress and struggle. It's a huge change. It's a huge environment shift. You are more independent than ever. Your ability to main your, maintain your mental health falls on nobody except for you. And that can be something that becomes a problem for a lot of students. So at the end of the day, I do think that if you don't have any experience navigating mental health challenges, if you do rely on your academics for your internal worth and for your mental health, Penn probably will be a place that makes things more difficult for you to thrive. And if you know how to deal with challenges, if you feel good about your ability to use your coping skills and balance your mental health and create relationships that help you feel seen and supported, I do think that you have the potential to be successful at any school. But again, it goes both ways, which can be a pro and a con, but other resources that they do offer, I do feel like people are having more conversations about mental health. I mean, there's a name for it, pen phase. People are aware of it. There's CAPS. They do share um, anonymous like hotlines, chat lines, etc. Um, there's, of course, all the national hotlines and things like that. Um, I don't know. CAPS is like psychological services. I don't know if that's where they do therapy, but I know there is like extensive student health services. So you definitely would be able to meet with a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um 
but yeah it's definitely I think a lot the skills you go in with and your Mm -hmm. your mental toughness your grit especially at Penn but yeah yeah I think so many things you said resonate with me. It's so funny that there's a name for it now, but like the exact same concept existed while I was there. Everyone had sort of this front of like, everything's easy, everything's fine. Nothing is like too stressful. And yeah. and Penn is also a very social school. So people would still feel, you know, very involved in social things and you needed to sort of look like you had it all together, but on the inside, you might be really struggling. And because nobody else appears to be struggling, it's so hard to know how many people. Yeah. It's so hard to know how many people are also feeling the exact same way. And you don't get this community of people because it feels like some sort of weird thing to admit that you're having a hard time because then you're not, you know, maintaining like everybody else is. We did get this new app thing, like during second semester, it's called Side Chat. And basically all the Penn students, not all, but lots of Penn students are on there. People post like funny memes. It's all anonymous. And there's a mix of like super random things there, like people posting bad food at comments, people like complaining about a final. But there's also a lot of people that will share when they're stressed out, when they're struggling, when they're depressed. Um, And I do feel like that has allowed at least more people to feel comfortable sharing that they're not okay and there's a lot of eyes on those um and so there is that that more people calling awareness to that than I would say existed prior which is totally interesting because it definitely was just people like this will be funny to post memes and anonymously (laughs) talk about random things people are like let's get deep (laughs) yeah no literally and so I do think that's kind of been an interesting pro of that and kind of something that they probably weren't expecting but it does allow for people to anonymously come forward and share things that they otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable talking about. Yeah, that's really nice that that exists. And like you were saying, I think it is so much about what you come in with. And I feel like it can be so hard to come into college at 18, like having those skills already. And so yeah. if you don't, it's a really hard time to all of a sudden just learn them, like you were saying, on your own. You be expected to come into college knowing how to completely deal with things. Like, I felt lucky that I did, but I don't think that should be criteria to which college students should be subjected to. So I, there's more that should be done, 100%. Um, but just like in the current arena, that's kind of what I've observed. Yeah. I also think it's interesting too because at my school, we also had like therapy that you could get for free. Um, You could also see like a psychiatrist, like there were things available, but I feel like it goes beyond that as well. It's like, yes, you should have therapists and psychiatrists there for students to talk to, but also like teachers should have a better understanding of mental health and they should, you know, be able to better detect maybe like when a student is going through something, not that they necessarily have to deal with it, but like just be aware, be aware of it, be able to detect it or like, you know, kind of keep up like a what environment bit. are yeah, they like, like creating in the classroom totally. like or like mm-hmm. our students are going through a pandemic like how do we support them you know I think it's tough because it's like I mean I did not go to Penn so I I didn't go through the the same experience but I remember Rebecca talking to me about it and it's kind of like great we have all this like mental health staff here for when the rest of the school makes this place too difficult for you to be in and I yeah. think that that's tough it's like it it starts at a different it should start at a different level it shouldn't be like here's what we have in place when you inevitably fail it should be like here's how we support you from the beginning it's definitely like a culture thing that needs to shift for 
for sure. And I, I almost wonder if it's possible because they're recruiting these students that are highly motivated, high achieving, extremely competitive. And like, how do you create a really collaborative, totally. mentally safe environment within that? And like, also select for those traits. So it's totally. difficult. It's like definitely a thing of like, how is that possible? And there has to be a better solution um, to how more students don't end up in that spot. And also like how they have dealt with things. There was two emails that we got, like the pen alerts, where there were two students who passed away this year. And I'm not 100% sure one of them at least for sure was a suicide and the other one I'm pretty sure was. But even those, they didn't even say that. It wasn't mm-hmm. like this student has taken their life. If there was like, of yeah. course, at the end, like here's the link to CAPS, but it wasn't like we're exploring the classes and environment and things the student was engaged in to maybe see where we could do better. Like there wasn't even the word suicide used. So that was another situation where I was like, this kind of is a little bit odd. They did that at at my school too. Like they would that we actually had several students while I was at and my school commit suicide and people were always upset with how they ended up reacting to it because it was always like they were trying to hide it and I remember there was one instance where it happened off campus in like a in a, a street where all the off-campus housing was and like all of these students had seen the police there the ambulance there like yeah. they had all seen this and so like now they all have to recover from the trauma of waking up on a Saturday and that's their reality and the school is just kind of brushed over it and yeah, no, literally the email was like a body was found. Right. And that was all. And it was right. like, it's like, <laughs> it's like they don't. Can we have more information? Yeah. Like, it's like we all saw this. Like we all know what's yeah. happening. So let's just be a little bit more transparent. And I yeah. think there's just so many politics that go into it, you know, on the backside of why they react the way that they do. And it's unfortunate. I feel like it's one of the few things that really hasn't changed at all in colleges. Um, is how, you know, they react to, like, serious cases like that. Um, yeah. Which is definitely a shame to see. But I feel like, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, for more. And I do think now there are more resources outside of your school, too. That's – I mean, like, I just think about the amount of ads I get for, like, better help and, like, all those things. Like, that never happened when I was growing up. Like, there was no – there was no – like – there were crisis lines, but there was no like texting ability mm-hmm. to just like text a therapist, you know, like a warm line where you just like say hi. Yeah, to like, yeah, totally. Well, Sadie, we've talked your ear off uh, for a while here, and we're so inspired by your story. But I think we just kind of want to end on one last question and just kind of hear from you. Maybe something that you're grateful for, or like a big learning that has come from all of your experiences. Um, because I think everyone who listens today is going to be really inspired by what you've shared. I, there's so many things like there's always an endless list. I think, um, just the insight that everyone really like does have mental health and everyone needs to invest in their mental health. I think, um, all the skills that I've learned have allowed me to feel really great about navigating any challenges that come up now. I think, I've been able to lean into so many passions relating to mental health because of what I went through. So there are just so many things, but I think I'm most grateful for the skills that I learned from what I went through because they've truly equipped me to navigate anything that could come up um, now. 
That's great. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, so we just want to thank you so much again for joining us and for sharing your experience. Um, to our sisterly listeners, you can find Sadie at She Persisted Podcast on Instagram, as well as um, at her website, www.shepersistedpodcast.com. Her podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and we'll be sure to link them in our Instagram stories as well. Thank you awesome. so much again, Sadie, for being here. This was wonderful. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we got to do this. Us too. Bye, everyone. Bye.